I never got any money from you. Be normal. And now, Mr. Edwards, I would like to make a disclosure, which is something which has never been revealed to the public. This is The Saucer Life, exploring the history and lore of flying saucers. The Saucer Life is a podcast in which we explore concepts, events, or people orbiting the world of flying saucers. Few preconceptions, snark where justified, no belief, no debunking. Um, not much of me in this one. This is, uh, this is Dark Skies, and it is our first... This is our first interview with a person, um, apart from some sort of snapshot stuff that we've done here and there. Uh, I'm interviewing Matthew Kressel, who has literally written the book on the 1990s television series Dark Skies, which aired for one very jam-packed, action-packed, but curiously drawn-out uh, season back in the mid-1990s. Um, if you're familiar with Dark Skies, uh, I think you'll find this interesting. There's a lot of nice behind-the-scenes info that Matthew was uh, was privy to. If you're not familiar with with Dark Skies, hopefully this uh, this whets your appetite for checking it out. If you are a fan of the Project Blue Book show, um, this this might be uh, your sort of thing. It's it's UFO stuff, it's conspiracy stuff, but it's also a period piece, the TV show, not the interview. The interview was, was actually very contemporary as of uh, a week or so. Um, so without further ado, let's, uh, let's get to our conversation with Matthew Kressel about his book on dark skies. Matthew, <laughs> tell us about uh, your background and interest in, in television and, and writing and um, any interest or, or background you have in, in UFO or conspiracy culture. Well, I suppose it's uh, fair to say that I came out of the womb basically being a nerd. I was uh, born, I was born and raised in in the Huntsville, Alabama area. So we're home to the Marshall Space Flight Center and the U.S. Space and Rocket Center. It's a big NASA center and a major NASA museum. In fact, it's the only place in the world with not one but two Saturn V rockets. Um, so I was interested in space from a young age, and uh, from a very very young age, as my as my parents will tell you. Um, so I was interested in space fact and fiction from a very young age, and I was also fascinated with history because one of the things my parents did to entertain me, uh, just to kind of show the level of nerdy sort of level of nerdiness that I had from a very young age, my parents used to check me space documentaries out of the library here on VHS and would put them on, and I would sit there and just watch and absorb information like a sponge. Um, so I became interested in the Cold War that way because I wanted to kind of understand the context of it, uh, especially as I got older. And, you know, I grew up – I was born in 88, so I grew up in the 90s, which was sort of, you know, the explosion of things like the X-Files, Dark Skies, Independence right. Day, all of this UFO stuff. So it was kind of – I suppose if you drew a Venn diagram of all of my interests, um, everything kind of overlaps in one place in a weird way. Um, I've never had a paranormal experience, never had a UFO sighting or anything like that, but I'd long been interested in, in the subject. Sightings was one of my favorite shows oh, yeah. as a kid, um, along with things like the X-Files and stuff. So that's that's kind of my background. I sort of I have a strong interest in American history as well, especially the Cold War period. Uh, so it was just kind of – I suppose it was kind of natural that when I finally got back around to Dark Skies, because I kind of missed it on first broadcast. I saw one episode of it in 1996, 
uh, we used to go up to Opryland, which used to be the theme park in Nashville. And one night in from the park for the day, my parents were sitting there flipping channels, trying to find something to keep particularly me entertained because I would have been six or seven years old. And it was an episode of Dark Skies called Mercury Rising, which is focused on a NASA launch that's actually being used by Majestic. And so that was my introduction to it, and I came to it as well through the Sci-Fi Channel's reruns of the show in the early 2000s. Uh, but it wasn't until 2013 that I kind of became aware of it again through a, a book called A.D. After Disclosure, co-written by Bryce Abel uh, along with Richard Dolan, Bryce having been one of the co-creators of Dark Skies. So I, ch I found the DVD online because it wasn't streaming anywhere, sadly still isn't, and watched it. And by the end of having watched the 19 episodes, I kind of went, it's all of my favorite things in one place. Because it's UFOs, it's conspiracy theories, it's American history, it's mid-century design, it's, it's once again, to use the Venn diagram thing, it, it's all my interests all in one place. And I had been a fan of Doctor Who for several years by that point and had just started having essays published in various books, including uh, the Outside In books published by ETB Press. Uh, which are edited by a friend of mine, uh, Robert Smith, who's a math professor at the university. I've met him at a, at a couple of uh, a couple of conventions. Yeah, he is a cool guy. He is. He um, is. And uh, currently editing two books, uh, taking the outside in approach on the X Files. Interestingly enough, oh. uh, which and I'll have essays in both books. But but that's a that's a, a plug for another time, I suspect. And um, so I, having gotten into the whole writing thing at that point, I kind of went, I really want to write a book about this. Somebody needs to do a guide and take it apart and do the fact and where the fact and the fiction ling sort of mingered together, but also tried to take it apart and figure out some of the craziness that was going on with it that was alluded to in some of the DVD extras. And it took three years and three different publishers before I ended up on Ob versus Radar. Um, and Obverse was uh, crazy enough by Stuart Douglas, who edits at Obverse, to let me do it. Now, what I'd like you to do, and I don't know if this is possible or how much fun this will be for you, how would you describe Dark Skies to someone who's never seen it? Which is a lot of people, I think. I think it's one of those shows that a lot of people have heard of and sort of have a, especially in, in, the, in, the, in the sort of flying saucer realm. It's like one of those shows, and there's sort of a, I'm not going to tell you what, I think the general sense of it might be in, in my mind. I want you to sort of, what is Dark Skies? If I've never seen it, what is it? I think the best way of summing it up is one of the taglines that the show used, which is that history as we know it is a lie, that since 1947, the premise of Dark Skies is, is that since 1947, history as we know it has been influenced by a covert extraterrestrial invasion that has been fought by a shadowy part of the United States government through, the, through this group called the Majestic 12. So it's essentially an alternate history of the last 70 years specifically focused on the 1960s. Yes, that's 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 how I would describe it. Um, another way to describe it, um, I described it to a friend of mine today when I told them I was uh, I was talking to you about uh, about the book, because I, I, um, 
I'm not sure if she was familiar with it. She might be probably about your age, but maybe wasn't on on her radar. I said it's um you could sort of think of it as if we're being uncharitable. Dollar Store X Files set in the '60s, which is kind of at the time. And I think you go into this in the book a little bit. One of the things that was sort of a strike against it in the public perception is that it, it's it's oh it's like the X Files, but it's not. Um, which I never really. I, once I started watching it, I, I sort of like, it isn't really like the X-Files at all. And I watched it sort of on the first run until they, I think they started messing around with the time slot. And then I like couldn't figure out where it was at times. But that's, a, you know, it, I think one thing about, um, one thing about the show uh, that, that you write about in, in a couple of the chapters in the book is um, the way that, uh, that history is an important aspect of the show, not just because of the setting, but because of the overall uh, the overall aesthetic and approach, um, how how does Dark Skies deal with history, and how do you deal with? Let's see if I can phrase this in a way that makes sense. How do you approach how Dark Skies approaches history? Well, how and why is is history important to the show? Sort of going beyond the setting, if that makes sense. I think that Bryce, when I interview both Bryce and Brent, and Brent Friedman, who was the co-creator of the show, in my research for the book, and Bryce, I have to say, also allowed me access to a, a whole wealth of behind-the-scenes documents, which I wish I could have featured more in the book um, than I was able to. But it became, I think, it's it, the historical setting is essentially important to it, because otherwise you end up with something that would be the X-Files by any other name, in effect. The historical thing is important to it because, as Bryce and as Bryce in particular put it to, to me, they sort of created the grand unification of conspiracy, which was that the show almost from the get-go ties in the two biggest conspiracy theories of the 20th century, or depending on your point of view, the two biggest conspiratorial events of the 20th century, which would be the events at Roswell and the subsequent cover-up of the UFO phenomenon by forces unknown, shall we say but also the JFK assassination. But it's not only that it ties in with the JFK assassination, but it's also tying in with the larger culture and the larger elements of it. So you go from everything from the Beatles making their first U.S. TV appearance to events in Vietnam to figures as wide-ranging as Jim Morrison, Carl Sagan, uh, the Kennedys, obviously. So the historical thing becomes important to it because it allows it's it's almost a revisionist history of the 20th century in a way. And it's sort of interesting that it came at a point when the Cold War was over, and all of the Cold War secrecy was starting to I don't I don't know if evaporate is the right word, but the walls were starting to come down. We'll put it that way. So we were learning details that we hadn't previously known before. Um, and that had been a process that had been ongoing since about the 70s, I think, you know, things, the revelation of things like MKUltra and what the CIA had been up to. And that, I think, is a, is a portion of what Dark Skies is, because the majestic of Dark Skies is very much a proxy for a lot of these governmental organizations with acronyms that grew up in the Cold War era. Um, there's a whole section of the show that goes into what they call the alien rejection technique, the ARTs, which is how they get the ganglions, which are implanted into people by the greys, out of their heads. And the experiences of those are incredibly violent in, in places. 
and that's it's hard not to see elements of MK Ultra in that, particularly you know when you have people being strapped down against their will and being subjected to experimentation. It's hard not to draw that. Right, and um, I, I like I like what you said about about Majestic in the show being uh, being a proxy for for not just the. 1990s ufological John Lear MJ12 kind of thing. It's it's more than that, and I think the uh, the ART sort of MK Ultra parallel is a good one. And it's been a while since I think the last time I, I watched the show was when I wrote a chapter about it in a book, and uh, it had just come out on DVD, which is which was fortuitous. But um, there was an I think. I remember, and I, this is one I remembered watching on on first run back when I was in college. Um, I think there's an episode that involved LSD somehow. Yep, the very last episode of the show uh, with Timothy Leary involved as well. Yes. Okay. So that that was that was the the last one. Um, I, di- I I'm pretty sure I didn't see them in order the first time. So I think I sort of <laughs> caught them here and there as my as my VCR was programmed to tape it or whatever. Um, mm. And and I remember. I mean, I remember that that episode. I believe I saw it. So that was the last one. And it had been, I'd missed like maybe like seven episodes. It had been like seven episodes of a gap between the last one I'd seen and this this LSD episode. And I remember thinking the show had, had changed a bit. I mean, it, it felt a little bit different. But I always remember that LSD show as, um, as, as being very... Um, sort sort of unexpected to me as a viewer because the last time I'd seen it, it was, you know, early sixties, you know, Camelot y kind of era sort of thing. And then suddenly we are we are headlong into uh into the counterculture and um and and you know shady drugs with with sinister overtones and things like that. So um I I always remembered that that LSD episode. For some reason, now along with the the historical aspects of the show, music plays a pretty significant role in the show. And and I, if I'm not mistaken, that mm. was one of the reasons why it took so long to come out on DVD. Right? That is right. Uh, Sony's lawyers insisted to Bryce and Brent because Bryce and Brent. God bless him, from almost day one of the show having gone out, knew that there was an audience for it. And maybe it didn't exist on the network, but certainly they could build, you know, it was a cult show and it deserved an audience, it deserved to find its audience. So they put pressure on Columbia, as it then was later Sony, to put it out. And Sony's insistence was is that there were about a dozen, basically each episode had one or two period songs in it. Um, so you have songs from that. So in the first, the pilot one, you get, depending on which version you watch, there's Stand By Me, and it ends with, um, I'm trying to think of what the song is, the Buffalo Springfield song. Uh, oh, um, what did it, um, uh, yeah, I know, <laughs> um, I know the one. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know what it is, but the title is escaping me because the title is not actually mentioned in the song, which is really weird. Um, it's the... I can't think. Is it the yeah. stop children look around? Yes, yeah, that, that one. one. Um, I know I, I, I know the lyrics, but I can't think of what the song's called. Um, but that's that's there. So every episode has at least one or two period songs in it. And that became the sticking point because apparently Sony insisted that there was no way that it would be 
that they could clear the episodes that way. It would just be too expensive to do. And that is true. That has happened in for other shows in other cases where they've either had to go back in and completely do them or they've cut entire scenes out. Doctor Who experienced that uh, infamously with a story from the mid-60s called The Chase because there's a clip of the Beatles on the BBC's Top of the Pops that was in that episode. And when it came for the North American DVD release – there was no way they could afford to clear the song. So they just took out an entire 90 second section of the episode. Yeah. And I, I think uh, spearhead from space, uh, the factory scene originally had, um, I think a Fleetwood Mac song. Yeah. So that had to be, um, that was, you know, th- thing, the things you missed. And the, the song from Buffalo Springfield is for what it's worth. There it is. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> I knew it was some phrase that had nothing to do with the song. Yeah. So. <laughs> had to, I had to throw that in the Google machine and uh, and see what happened. So yeah, the, the another sort of show where the the DVD release was held up by audio that, from a historical perspective, always was frustrating to me until it finally came out was the uh, the civil rights era documentary Eyes on the Prize. Uh, that was it sort of came out on VHS from PBS back in the back in the eighties, and then the DVD release was held up forever. Because yes. uh, they used a lot of music from the 50s and like almost constantly music from the 50s and 60s. And, and, and it wouldn't be the same without it. And I yeah, think yeah. Dark Skies falls into that category of a show where it's not like getting rid of the clip of the Beatles in that Doctor Who episode. You know, it, it, yeah, it yeah. doesn't really change it substantively. But you, you get rid of that music in Dark Skies and you, you, lose, uh, you lose a lot of that, um, a lot of that aesthetic. Yeah. What Bryce and Brent wanted to do at one point was is that something that Doctor Who had done in stories like Remembrance of the Daleks, for example, which is another one that had featured a lot of period songs, where they wanted to go in and actually just put in sound alike versions of them. And so the Sony lawyers went, Okay, let's see if we can clear that. And then Sony's law and the lawyers came back and went, Oh, actually we cleared this stuff at from the beginning. We took another look at the paperwork. So yeah, go ahead, release it as is. Um, Bryce sort of ju- has, I think, sort of half-jokingly said that Majestic kept the thing held up for years and years and years, not wanting the truth to get out. Um, I have, I, I have to admit, I have wondered about that because it seems very, it does seem very strange that having insisted that that was the issue for years and years and years, it suddenly wasn't an issue after all. So it's it's one of the many peculiarities that has uh, sort of around the making of the show. It's it's an odd it's an odd sort of thing. Um, it, it, except you know, music rights are like famously you know tricky and and complicated and often nonsensical unless you're the person getting the royalty check and then it makes perfect sense. Yeah. But um. But but yeah, it, it seems like like you know there were other things maybe holding holding it up that they weren't maybe as forthcoming about, and it could be something as as prosaic as they really didn't think it was worth the money and time to actually go through it and release it. I, I don't know how the sales of the DVD have done. Um, I have to imagine that more people might have seen it on DVD than, than maybe saw it during, uh, during the first run or, or saw it or, or have saw it in reruns in, you know, sci-fi channel or the DVD mm. than saw it on the first run. Because I think scheduling wise, uh, was it on Saturdays? I seem to recall it being on Saturday. It was. It was part of. It was part of the NBC uh, trilogy. Was the way the network put it. So it was. Yeah, nobody's watching that. Yeah, yeah. It was on. <laughs> it, it was sort of Dark Skies, The Pretender, and The Profiler. 
Oh, the Pretender. Oh man, so all, that was a, yeah. All three of those were airing. It was all part of a big block on Saturday nights, and it was it was a bid to try and turn the Saturday night death slot. Um, yeah. Into something successful, which actually worked. Uh, NBC's ratings actually went up during the period during that ninety six ninety seven season. But um, it's you know, Dark Skies' scheduling being in that early slot um, did it no favors. One of the fun things you can do with the Shout Factory DVD release is you it does list the broadcast dates. For the episodes, and if you look at the broadcast dates for the episodes, you'll notice that the show will air for two or three weeks at a time, and then it will disappear for three or four weeks at a time, and then it'll air for two, three weeks at a time, and it'll disappear for another three or four weeks at a time. It took nine months to air an entire season of the show, to air all 19 episodes of the show, it's, which is almost unheard of in network television for something that you have a full season order for really is strange especially since it's very it's much more it's much more an example of of almost a, a more modern serialized storytelling also so so to have these these you know have these big gaps between episodes um made very little sense from if you're trying to build an audience for this particular show that's the opposite of what you want to do. Um, it, it's just very strange. I mean, it was, you know, and, and there were other issues going on with the show at the time as well. My favorite story that I talk about in the book um, is that Bryce and Brent got a phone call one day from some Columbia executives telling them that they couldn't feature the men in black in the show because the Columbia was producing with Steven Spielberg the big blockbuster men in black movie starring Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones. And Bryce apparently tried to explain because he had he you know both men had an interest in ufology as I talk about in the book, but Bryce had written Official Denial, which was Sci-Fi Channel's first original movie, which deals which is almost a first draft for Dark Skies in many ways, which features the Men in Black in it to an extent. He had written episodes of Lois and Clark, the Superman show for ABC, one of which was basically a UFO episode, which revealed Superman's alien origins, which featured. A version of the Majestic Twelve and the Men in Black, and as as Bryce has rightly said, you know the Men in Black have been part of UFO lore going back to the 1950s. And the executive said, "Hang on, I'll come on down." And came down to the set and met them. Basically said, "You get those guys out of their black suits today, or we will cancel your show and we will burn the negative, and nobody will ever see it." So they had to spend $116,000 to reshoot scenes from the pilot the awakening to get as to reshoot as many scenes as possible to get people into lighter colored suits or military uniforms and to try and avoid featuring men in black at all it's the reason why there's two different versions of the awakening because it wasn't an issue that there were men in black Overseas, There was an issue with them be being men in black on American television. So there are two slightly different versions of the opening 90-minute pilot for Dark Skies as a result of that, both of which are on the DVD uh, as a result of that. But Brent, who's the other co-creator of the show, described it as being in like the ninth circle of hell because – you have you had he had they had absolutely no control over the situation whatsoever, and if they didn't do something about it, there wasn't going to be a show, and it was just something as they described that was quite ridiculous. The other thing that happened was that Majestic's headquarters moved. If you watch the two versions of it, if you watch what's known as the International Pilot, so that's the original version, it was under uh, Union Station in Washington D.C. 
And what happened is, if for those who have seen Men in Black will remember, it was under I can't remember what it was under in New York City, but they somebody at Columbia decided that was too similar. So if you watch the broadcast version and the series as it goes on, Majestic's headquarters is moved somewhere out into the forests around in Virginia around Washington D.C. I don't know how many examples there are of, of shows that have you know one pilot, one version of the pilot for U.S. consumption, another version of the pilot for international consumption, where where the differences are, are, are aren't you know just like ooh, ooh this was cut slightly differently or or they had commercial breaks here or there depending on the market, but where locations changed that's that's mind boggling to me. It it is it is the only example that I am aware of as the as the TV nerd that I am. It's the only one that I know of where you can find that kind of differences between things. It's not like with the original Star Trek where they basically reinvented the show between shooting two different pilots. It was they kept I would probably 75% of the footage between the two and there's scenes which are edited slightly differently. There's a, there's a scene there when the series starts, the John Lowengard character, our lead character is working for a congressman. And at one point the congressman and John's girlfriend, Kim meet, and there's a slightly different version of that conversation between them. Um, but there, but I would say 70, 75% of the footage between the two versions is the same. It was done mainly to get people, out of costumes, <laughs> to, apparently to make Steven Spielberg happy. You know, if you got to make somebody happy, it might as well uh, it might as well be Spielberg. Now, talking about the book, um, our, our listeners, I'm familiar with it, but our listeners might not be familiar with the Silver Archive series and Obverse books. Um, what what is the book like? It's a book about dark skies, but what is the book like as as, as part of that series? What's the approach? that they take so that the the silver archive kind of spun out of off versus black archive and people who are doctor who fans may recognize the black archive as being sort of the uh in the show the unit archive where all this alien technology and stuff ends up at sort of a i guess a british area 51 for lack of a better way of putting it apparently hidden beneath the tower of london if i remember correctly um the Black Archives was sort of the idea that they would take a look at various serials and episodes of Doctor Who in both its 20th and 21st century incarnations, and they would do sort of kind of critical analysis of it. So, you know, semi-academic, uh, but hopefully not taking itself too seriously, since we are talking about a an artifact of popular culture that's been around for decades. And the Black Archive had been very success had been very successful as a series, and I would assume from the way Stewart has talked about it that Stuart Douglas, who owns Obverse, obviously, uh, that he thought it, there were a lot of cult TV properties, as, as the Brits like to put it, that would stand up to such analysis. And that was where the Silver Archive was born, and in 2017 they opened up to pitches uh, for that. So the approach to the book is is semi-academic with a heavy emphasis on the semi because i wanted to if when i first pitched the book because it took three different publishers uh, including obverse before somebody finally agreed to do it um when i originally wanted to do the book i thought it would be a straightforward episode guide you know i'd go through the show and sort of talk about the fact separating the facts from the fiction as it were as it went along and with the obverse approach that wasn't quite going to work so i you know, it's basically a series of essays on various topics. So the book opens with a look at all the ufological elements used in the show. So things we talked about so far, you know, Majestic, Roswell, 
cattle mutilations, abductions, you name it, and sort of looking at how the show, what's the background to these subjects, but also how does the show use them. The second chapter looks at the history of the disinformation side of things, because a lot of the mythology of the UFO subject has its origins in some rather dubious places, uh, particularly looking at the the so-called Benowitz affair that happened in the late 70s and throughout the 80s out around Kirtland Air Force Base in New Mexico, but also looking at things like the Robert Emenegger's story about how he was approached by the Air Force to make a UFO documentary, and they had this incredible footage of this landing that they that was snatched from his hands. Um, but looking at that in the light of some strange experiences that Bryce and Brent had while making the show, uh, where they were approached by a couple of individuals claiming to have inside knowledge and wanting to help the show get it out. Um, but I also, you know, I take kind of a look at the, as we talked about, the way that the show uses history, for example, and it's sort of incorporating real figures and events. So I think particularly I look at how it uses the U2 incident, which is in the very opening of the show. Um, if you want sort of the biggest difference in, of Dark Skies to the X-Files, very first scene in Dark Skies is Francis Gary Powers and his U-2 spy plane in 1960 chasing a UFO. There's no ambiguity of whether aliens exist and whether they're, they're here. They're, he they're here all right, and, we, and they are changing things as we go. And also looking at how the show uses various historical figures, including Carl Sagan, uh, which we can talk about in a bit if you want to, uh, because the way the show uses Sagan is quite interesting. But also looking at um, the kind of where the show comes from, because the way it presents the Greys is that the Greys themselves are a conquered race. They've been enslaved by the Hive, as as they're referred to in the show, which is kind of ganglion-like creatures that kind of take you over and possess you. So it's kind of an invasion of the body snatchers thing. So I did look at things, not just Invasion of the Body Snatchers, but also Robert Heinlein's The Puppet Masters and its early 90s film version, which I think is a bit of an influence on Dark Skies, but also Nigel Neal's Quatermass 2 from the 50s. Because, you know, that thing in some respects is, is the granddaddy of a lot of, whether we want to acknowledge it or not, I think that, you know, Quatermass 2 is really the granddad, the sort of the granddaddy for a lot of the pop culture UFO cover-up ideas. Because they don't really exist until Neil does first the serial on BBC television in 55, and then Hammer does the film in 57, which is much, I think, because it had the international audience, which the, the TV serial didn't, I think is far better known. But also looking at that through the spectrum of the revelations of the Cold War, you know, the Red Scare and what we now know about it, particularly the information that was coming out in the 90s regarding Soviet espionage in the U.S. in sort of the World War II early Cold War period. Um, and then just the actual question of where would the show have gone if it had gotten a second season? Because it was hugely ambitious. Um because as you talked about earlier, they were sort of building an audience and continuing all these big story arcs. And they had a five-year story arc planned from the get-go. They sent out to the various TV executives they were pitching to this black binder, which was basically the plans for the show for five years. And you know, with a, actually mixing in things like the real, in inverted commas, Majestic 12 documents that leaked in 87, for example. So it's such a cool way to pitch the show, to, right. to sort of and, blend that, that sort of – I'm not sure I want to say real world, but that ufological world, sort of the actual documentation in with the pitch for the show. Um, it, I'm not surprised somebody somebody bit. Yeah. Apparently, two different networks bid the same day that they went out, and NBC happened to win out. 
But um, they had two different – by the end of day, they had two different offers for it, and NBC was the one who actually bought it. Um, but they, I got to actually look at where that five-year plan might have gone, which was a really interesting thing to do as somebody who was a fan of the show, who had kind of wondered, spent years wondering, well, where would this have gone? Um, and that was somewhere where I benefited from getting to interact with Bryce, particularly with Bryce, but also with Brent Friedman, the other creator as well. So it's – you know, and I partly because Obverse's books are used on academic courses in the UK as part of media studies. Um, I had expected there might be some pushback because I was willing to entertain, you know, some of the UFO stuff. Well, you know, paying lip service to the skeptics, and we may not like the skeptics very much, um, but the skeptics can The skeptics are occasionally right, and they can help keep us from going too far down a particular garden path. Um, as I've discovered by the number of people who think that Valiant Thor is a real figure from somewhere who landed at the Pentagon and spent the 50s there. Hey, 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 hey now. Hey now. He's real. I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. He's not. Yes. <laughs> or is um, he? Who knows? Which I don't talk about in the book, but that's a story. You could write a book about that one, that whole saga, to be sure, and the continuing belief in, in that to this day. But I digress. Folks, check the, check the link in the show notes for our episode on Valiant Thor and Dr. Frank Stranges. And so I expected there would be some pushback. And God bless Stuart, in particular, God bless Stuart, because he just kind of, you know, he gave you some really great notes uh, about, you know, you may want to. You may want to go, you want to go into this further. There's a really strange thing about writing about this topic because I've also done a number of fiction pieces tying into the ufological thing um, in terms of short fiction. And there seems to be a thing that whenever I write about UFOs, I get the exact opposite editor's note back because famously editors tell you to take things out. Whenever I write about UFOs, editors want me to put things in. Uh, and go into more detail. So I, I don't know what the correlation is there, but I was I was very much given free reign to say to say what I honestly thought. So that is in the book. Whether you know whether people like me or not, by the time they finish the book, is their affair, as far as I'm concerned. And I think I think um, as as a UFO guy reading the book, I think you did a really good job of discussing the 1990s um, sort of cultural milieu of ufology at the time especially trying to, to sort of sort out the the mj12 papers and that that whole history and if i i think i can shed some light on why you get the put more stuff in note from editors about ufo stuff i think it's because the topic no matter what aspect of the topic you look at um at, if, when you try to explain it in some way it's just so vast and so detailed in a lot of cases that you you sort of try to pare it down to sort of make a narrative make sense, and it's really easy to take too much out. So when somebody else reads it, they're like, yeah, I think I don't, I'm not sure what's going on here. Could you give us some more detail? And you're like, really? Um, that's what I've always found when when writing about this subject. It's what I find working on pod on episodes of the podcast too it's, it's just that you know finding the right balance of of telling the story but not getting so bogged down in all the details that it's a story that nobody has the energy to read so finding that balance is really difficult 
Yeah, I mean, that was I actually that makes sense of one of the notes I got at one point from Stewart in the document uh, track, you know, because in in Word, of course, you can you sort of do track changes and put in notes. And one of his was at one point somewhere in the book was you clearly know what you're talking about. but Can you please explain more about it? Um, and which I have to admit, I did tell him this as well, that at one point I seriously thought the audience for this book would be about seven people who would all be, you know, who would all be. Dark Skies fans and UFO buffs, so I didn't necessarily think I had to go into laborious amounts of detail. But I did find uh, having the perspective of somebody who wasn't, you know, hip deep in ufology, and I, you know, I'd had an interest in the subject, but I really deep dived when I wrote the book um, because there's nothing worse than picking up a nonfiction book written by somebody who knows nothing about a topic. At least, at least in my experience, yes, it's. Um it's very frustrating, especially when it's a topic you love, um, mm. especially when it's a TV show you love. Uh, so that, that's one of the things I like about um, the, uh, the the obverse books approach, uh, both their Doctor Who stuff and their, their Silver Archive stuff, that, you know, your, your Dark Skies book and also the, uh, the Sapphire and Steel volumes they've done is that um, – I, I read those books and I they make me want to go rewatch these episodes to see stuff that I missed the first time or to to look at them through these uh, through these different lenses. So that's what a, a good a good book about a TV show makes you want to watch it again or watch it for the first time. And, and I'm one of that, I think, very probably small number of people who will read books about TV series they've never seen um, <laughs> just because it's it's faster than watching the show. Sometimes, um, sometimes easier. Yes. Yes. Um, and, and sometimes, sometimes better. I'm looking at you, Blake seven. Um, sometimes easier to just read about some episodes rather than having to, uh, to suffer, uh, to suffer through them. So why didn't, so you, you talk about how, uh, how, uh, Zabel and Friedman had a five-year plan, an ambitious five-year plan for dark skies. Why didn't it last beyond one season? I think it was entirely down to studio politics and ratings, to be honest. Um, that early Saturday night slot, I think, was just – it was in some respects the kiss of death to a show that need that was so arc-based uh, because it was being – it was preempted left, right, and blue um, by various – by sporting events and anything and everything. And I think that had a lot to do with it. Um, and it was also, I think, as Bryce and Brent have owned up to, that because it was period, it was more expensive to make. And I th and I think it was a case of I think the network finally got cold feet about it, um, and the network you know the network was as they put it was very supportive and very understanding, but also slightly interfering at the beginning as as the Men in Black story will allude to. But as it went on, they were kind of given more and more free reign. So basically, the last six episodes of the show they got very few network notes back on any of it whatsoever so it, it kind of sounds like the network just kind of abandoned it but that was also partly down to studio politics because the network didn't have any kind of ownership over dark skies it was entirely owned by columbia then sony now whereas the pretender i think it was was half owned by in by the network and the profiler was entirely a network owned show so it was kind of a case of you know the i guess being the uh, least loved out of the th out of three kids, um, but there was there was an effort made to kind of get it to go somewhere else, which I do talk about a bit in the book. Which is at one point, uh, 
the USA Network, which is an NBC subsidiary, at least it was then, actually approached them about bringing Dark Skies to their channel, to their cable channel, with the stipulation of if they did it, they had to bring it into the present day. Um, and I do talk I talk about that in the book, and it would have been, I think as Bryce put it, it would have been a different series, not necessarily a bad series, but it would have been a very different series. And given how much the progression over the decades is part of Dark Skies' fabric, as well as interacting with these real historical figures and these real historical events, I have, as a fan, as well as the guy who's now written the book about it, I have a hard time imagining a version of Dark Skies set exclusively in the 1990s. Yeah, um, yeah, not yeah. Without an intervening 70s and 80s to to get us there, I, I think it would be. I don't know if if this if this uh, if this parallel makes sense to you or to or to anybody else because I think I'm the only person who watched this show. In fact, I'm I'm not entirely sure the show actually existed. But um, in I think '88 or '89, there was a War of the Worlds TV series yes. in syndication, and uh, the, yep. the first season was set in the present day, and it was awesome. And then the second season was um, set several years in the future after the aliens have taken over with an entirely different cast, and um, it sucked. And I, I, I would think that if they were to take, I, I sort of, I sort of imagine that I would feel a similar way if they would have taken Dark Skies and picked it up and moved it to USA and set it thirty years in the future. It's like, who are these people? Mm. Why do I care? I miss my old show with the characters I liked. Um, so it would, it would have been, it wouldn't necessarily have been a bad show, but um, you sort of, I think, run the risk of, of having to build an entirely new audience to replace the audience you've sort of alienated from who loved the first version, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I, it totally makes sense. And I think that was part of the reason, I mean, they did prepare a whole pitch document, which I do quote from in the book about how they would do it. And the idea to kind of sum it up real quick was that the John Lowengard and the, was the John Lowengard character and the Juliet character was introduced later in the show played by, um, I think it was Jerry Lynn Ryan who famously went on, of course, the Star Trek Voyager. Seven of Nine, uh, who appears in the last, I think it's like the back half of Dark Sky's first and only season. The two of them would have, picking up from the cliffhanger ending of the first season, would have ended up through a crash, ending up moving into the 90s. So you would have had the two of them, and then they would have filled in what had happened in the intervening 30 years between the two events. So you have these two out-of-time characters uh, trying to fight a version of the hive, which is now farther ahead than they are. Um, it just, yeah, I, I can't imagine a version of dark skies that would have existed. That would have been that, um, they were, they were building towards that idea. That was the plan was, is that eventually by the time they got to their fourth and fifth season, they would catch up to the present day. So, but that would have been 98, 99, 2000. They would have caught up to it. Uh, but they didn't, you wouldn't have had the intervening, years to it as well because the whole idea i think was eventually that the dark skies that title was actually going to refer to a movement sort of a grassroots resistance movement that would sort of grow out of the events of the show and there's hints of that throughout the first season with the various characters they meet that they were eventually going to build a resistance movement outside of majestic for various reasons but i can't imagine how they would have done that without two or three seasons worth of build-up in between and i mean Sort of going back to what we've said and talked about 
over the last you know 35 40 minutes the, that historical sort of period aspect of it was so crucial to the overall presentation that i, I mean it, it, it loses something because looking at it i mean thinking about a five-year plan for this show just nerding out a little bit I want a Dark Skies Watergate episode. Yes. I want a Dark Skies Iran hostage episode. I want a Dark Skies invasion of Afghanistan episode. I want a Dark Skies Iran Contra episode. I want yep. a, a I, I I want a Dark Skies Y2K episode. I, I want all of these these historical periods because that's what made the show that's what made the show interesting. And it's also just looking back at it, you know, from a from a 2020 perspective, it's also what made the show a little, you know, a, a little like oh, to to me a, a, little, a little bit cringy. Um the uh the the episode uh set in the deep south, the sort of civil rights era movement episode. Um mm, it, Mississippi those, burning, yeah. Mississippi burning. Yeah, I I don't think that it, I'm not sure how well that particular episode ages. Um but it, it's an interesting I'm not sure how I guess what I'm saying is if they were to remake this episode in 2020, it would be a very different episode. I think I think it does. I think they did a remarkable job handling that topic within the context of an alien invasion government cover up show um, for 1996, 1997. I think they did a a very good job. But it's um, it's one of those things where if you were to show it to like a high school student or a college student now. Be prepared to say, yeah, you know, it, it was it was twenty years ago. You know, let's let's you know keep that uh, let's keep that in mind. But it was so good. But those those sort of historical moments that they dealt with were so significant to the way the show was was crafted and sort of what the show meant and what made the show different. Um, yeah, y- you move it into the nineties and it becomes oh, what was it called? Falling skies was that the name of it I, I think it was some cable show where it's like a post-apocalyptic alien yeah that sounds about thing. right yeah no, the, the 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 young guy from er was in it noah yep. something yep. Um, noah wiley noah wiley the librarian right um, yes yeah so uh, i'm hip uh so <laughs> <laughs> um there's a show that can't there's a show that can't decide if aliens exist or not because they've got the roswell saucer but they insist the aliens don't exist it's like how does that work yeah, I, I it's one of those shows where I, I bought the first season on um, or, or Falling Skies anyway. I bought the first season on uh, on iTunes and I watched three episodes and like this is great, and then I never watched it again um, because I'm old and I have responsibilities, so I have to you know limit my TV watching to stuff I've seen a hundred times that I love. So um, so here's uh, as we as we sort of. Um, uh, approach the end. Uh, here's my question. This is a, a hypothetical. Uh, Bryce Zabel has retired. He wants nothing to do with television. Uh, Brent Friedman has, uh, has, has abandoned everybody and lives in a mine in Nevada. And because you've written the only actual book about Dark Skies, you are given the job of rebooting Dark Skies for Netflix or, or Amazon or what have you. How would you do it? Well, there's a challenge. <laughs> there's there's a couple of different approaches you could take. I think the the thing to do these days, I think, would be that people would just completely reboot it from the ground up. Um, 
which I could see the value of doing that. And but there's a part of me that would just want to do, and partly because I've seen the document that was they've written up that they've used to pitch to Sony. The idea of picking it up a couple of years after the show would have left off. Because you can still get away with it if you bring in some of the surviving cast can still just about pull it off. Where you would pick the show up around 68, 69, you know, with the Robert Kennedy assassination. Now there's something you could have fun with with the Dark Skysian atmosphere with the whole strangeness that is the RFK assassination. Um, and sort of go from there into Watergate. Because, you know, Nixon, the, the whole stories about Nixon and Ford with this with the UFO topic are interesting in their own right. Um, and Ford being a member of the Warren Commission as well, which the show ties into in in a fantastic episode. It may be one of the best clip shows ever made for American television. Um, because if you if you want to know how to make a clip show, go watch the Warren Commission. I'm just saying. Um, my my vote would be that you would sort of do a continuation of it, though. I think you're. I think it, as the years pass, that's going to be harder and harder to do. I, I suppose just for practical reasons, it would be easier just to do a complete reboot of it as much as I want to do a, a continuation of it. Uh, it may just be easier to go back and reboot it, go back to that original pilot script, um, maybe pick up the pace a little bit because it is it is a mid-90s piece. So the pacing is, by at least 21st century standards, perhaps a little on the slow side. But you could rebuild things from there and sort of layer the original shows into it. Cause I think a lot of the basic stories you could still do, but you would change how you would approach it. The, uh, we shall overcome is the episode you were talking about the Mississippi burning one. I think you could still do that basic story, but you would definitely approach it from a different angle and particularly the way that you handle the characters and the stuff in it, you would approach it, but the basics, you could still do that basic story, uh, but you would approach it from a very, very different angle. So I think, for practical reasons, if if a studio, if Columbia, who owns the rights to it, Sony, I should say, came to me and gave me oodles of money and said, okay, this is how you're going to do it. I'm afraid, apologies to Bryce and Bryant if they're listening, I would reboot it uh, just simply for practical reasons. As brilliant as the original show is, if you're going to do it as an ongoing piece of work. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you would have, I think you would have to reboot it from scratch, especially if you're doing it, you know, 10 or 15 years from now. Yeah, I agree. Um if for no other reason than a continuation of a show that ran for one season in the mid nineties, um, you, it, it's, it's like, I mean, it's sort of a Battlestar Galactica situation. People have fond yeah. memories of it, but how many people watched every episode and, and sort of, it's, it's sort of can pick it up. I think one thing that would help a show like this nowadays is that this idea that we've sort of moved away from, for a lot of shows, you know, 22 episode seasons. So yeah. you could, you could do 12 episodes and have a, have a season. Imagine any show from the eighties or nineties where a season was the 12 best episodes of the 26 that you got or whatever that, mm. that would just, I'm just imagining just how amazing star Trek, the next generation would have been with 12 episodes a season. Um, or even the X files for that. Matter. The X files. Oh, ab absolutely. Um, although I worry that we'd get nothing but, you know, the myth arc and none of the awesome monster of the week episodes, which really, I think hold up a lot better because you at least have a complete story. Um, and that's one thing I think where Dark Skies, you know, beats the X-Files is is when you build up an, a mystery for nine years, you got to have a payoff. And, yeah. you know, I, don't, I mean, I don't think it's a controversial thing to say 
to say the X-Files didn't stick the landing on that original series finale. I, I remember being very confused and wondering if I was dreaming this horrible episode. But, um, but I, I, I was young and, uh, and, and cynical. But like you said, in uh, the title of, your, uh, of the chapter four of the book, it's uh, it, Dark Skies was Mad Men for the Close Encounters set, which is, uh, I, I think, a, a, great, uh, a great phrase. And if, if I were rebooting it, I would, I would start it over I would I would begin again and I would I would set it in the 80s. Uh, I would make it I would start it off in the 80s um, because if we're sort of looking at the amount of time between the original airing and the time period it was set. Let's bring that forward and so let's do an 80s aesthetic. Let's make it uh, let's make it the Americans for the Close Encounters set. Let's make it a late Cold War thing uh with glass-nosed and perestroika it would be it would definitely be an interesting way to approach it if you know, if you didn't want to go back and do that whole 60s setting again which i have to say i'd let, you know that's that's my jam i'm a, a big fan of that sort of 60s the both that design but also the history and stuff from that but you could certainly do a lot of really interesting stuff with the 80s with the reagan era you mentioned iran contra earlier i'd love to know in a dark skies universe what was really going on with that whole story that would be that would be amazing and the only problem is you'd get um sort of so, something the original suffered from yeah the original was was compared to the x-files and and you know a later reboot would be oh it's like mad men with aliens or it's it's like the americans or glow with aliens um and mm. so part of me is like oh do we have any 90s retro shows um, you know, because it's, it's far enough away. It's, it's, it's long enough ago that, I mean, look at all the people who think friends was a decent television show who, you know, were toddlers <laughs> at the time. Um, no, it was horrible. Uh, <laughs> people are wrong. Yeah. I had a, I had an interesting experience last year when I was, uh, sending off a piece of historical fiction and their definition of historical fiction was anything before 1995. And I suddenly felt as somebody born in 88, I felt really old all of a sudden as, as, as somebody born in 75, I, I I'm just like, really? It's like, no, it's not history. If I was in my twenties at the time, <laughs> that's, that's not history. That's, that's current events. But yeah. as, as somebody, but I think, Sorry, but sorry. Um, but I think you have to you have to put it in some kind of historical start it in some kind of historical place and then work your way forward to the present, I think. Because you need the historic you need the background of cover up, if if nothing else. The kind of this is the history behind this, this is what's been going on throughout all this. And I mean Dark Skies the in the original run of it actually figured out a way to do that because you do have flashbacks to Roswell in 47 and I think in one or two other places flashbacks to events in the 50s. But for the most part it's saying this is the history of it. Absolutely. That's the that's in the past, this is the present, this is us going forward. And I think you could do that even with an 80s setting. The 90s I think you could do that cuz you know that was the disclosure movement as it now exists. Uh, sort of starts kicking off in the 90s. So I could see there could be a version of that. I'd, I'd, you could have a John Lowengard figure who was leaking documents to Steve Greer and whoever else, for that matter. Um, whether you actually want to do that or not is a whole different matter. But I could see, I could see dramatic potential in doing that. Yeah, I, that would be... That would be uh, that would be good. Now you mentioned that that Carl Sagan had a a particular role in in the show. What was uh, what was Carl? What, how did the show treat Carl Sagan? 
the show's treatment of Carl Sagan is in its last two episodes. And the, what happens is that he essentially becomes Majestic's scientific advisor uh, for those last couple of episodes and kind of gets brought in and kind of given the truth and basically told that if you you can you can get involved with us and you can do all this work with us, but you can't tell anybody what you know. Um, which is interesting from the perspective of Sagan's own real life, because Sagan throughout throughout much of his early life, well into the 50s and 60s, had an was an avid interest in the UFO topic as somebody who was an up and coming scientist. Um, William Poundstone, his biographer, famously tells the story in uh, A Life in the Cosmos of Sagan dragging his college roommate at the University of Chicago up to the roof night after night after night in hopes of seeing a UFO. Um, and famously, in 1962, uh, he writes this NASA-fronted, granted paper on the idea of what we would now recognize as the ancient, ancient alien, ancient astronaut hypothesis, uh, to the point in the abstract of it saying that there are legends and stuff that could be profitably studied and from the perspective of alien visitation, which is not what you expect from the guy who, you know, hosted Cosmos that spent half an episode debunking Betty and Barney Hill's star map and the whole UFO phenomenon in general. Um, but the whole – the way it treats Sagan is that he is somebody who is brought in on the inside who gets trapped a bit by doing it as sort of this young, cocky scientist, which you know, there's there's some great news footage of Sagan in – of the real Sagan in this period, and he is you know, cocky as all get out. Um, but that's sort of how they treat – sort of treat him as sort of this young, rising scientist who gets brought into it because of an interest in the idea of extraterrestrial life and who ends up basically being in encircled by the secrecy. Uh, which, as Bryce has said, he met Sagan in 1981 when he was working at CNN. Um, they did a CNN did a half hour special with Sagan about the Voyager flyby of I believe it was Saturn, and Bryce kind of was walking back out to the car and they were sort of chit chatting and the UFO topic came up. And as Bryce originally revealed in 80 After Disclosure, but I talk about in the book as well, uh, having asked him about an interview, him and Sagan basically spent 15, 20 minutes in a CNN parking lot, you know, knocking the UFO topic back and forth. Um, now, I, did, I, I do want to make clear, as Bryce would make clear to me, that the show wasn't settling scores by any means. Uh, because Bryce, as he said, thought that Sagan was a really cool guy. And, you know, and there's no doubting that Sagan's role as a popularizer of science uh, is incredibly important. On the other hand, Sagan's about face somewhere in the mid '60s on the whole topic of ufology is a very curious one, given his background, given his you know statements both in public and in private, and indeed in academia. That somewhere in the mid '60s he suddenly flipped a switch and spent the rest of his life, at least publicly, saying that the whole subject was a whole bunch of nonsense. And Dark Skies offers a particularly fun solution to that, you know, this biographical conundrum, as it were. Yeah, it's always been a sort of a, a sort of mystery, you know, and something commented on by ufologists that, that Sagan was, at one point, you know, relatively open-minded about the topic. I think uh, Stanton Friedman, who, who was familiar yeah. with, with Sagan's work, you know, all the way back when they were both at the University of Chicago. Had, had, had they made, were classmates for right. two years. They, they made, you know, Dark Skies made a, a, good, a, a good attempt to solve that within their own dramatic framework, which I think is a lot of fun. And in the mid-90s, people knew who Carl Sagan was. It would be, for our younger listeners, it would be like an episode with Neil deGrasse Tyson, um, sort of, you know, being a character like this, you know, you know, if, if he were 
if he were dead. It's an odd way to put it. Well, that was the thing. Sagan had only passed away about six months before the episode aired, too. Uh, before those two episodes aired, Sagan had just passed away. And the fun thing about the last episode that he appears in, the finale of the show, is, is that if you kind of stop and think about it for a moment, they're detecting a television signal that's been trans- that's being transmitted from the Grace planet to Earth and everything else. It's basically a Dark Skies inversion of Contact, his famous novel, which was about to be turned into, which had been turned into a movie that was like six weeks away from coming out. Uh, when the episode aired, so it was it was a very much a case of where they basically turned Carl Sagan's life and career on its ear. But they had been doing that throughout the show, but they had they hadn't really done it as prominently as they did with Sagan. Um, but it was also a case of I think as Bryce said that there was some the network was originally a bit worried about them using a lot of historic because they use a lot of historical figures a lot of their, and name them you know naming and shaming for lack of a better way of putting it. And um, as Bryce put it, the, the lawyers came back and went, well, they're either dead or they're public figures, which means that they can't sue us. So go ahead and do what you want. They're fair game. The only time they didn't get away with it was uh, one of the final episodes. I think it's the fourth episode from the end to Pray in Darkness features a character who's a C- who works at CBS News who's a rising figure in the network who it's hinted might be an anchor one day. And it's even with the casting of it, it's. It's a young Dan Rather in everything but name. And it, as Bryce told me, it was the only time that the lawyers and the censors came back to them and told them they had to change a name, was they couldn't feature a young Dan Rather in an episode. They could have William Paley in the episode, played by Art Bell, of played by Coast to Coast AM fame. They have Walter Cronkite walk around in the background at, in a couple of points, but they couldn't name Dan Rather. You know, I, I I wonder if, I mean, I think at the time, Dan Rather was still actively doing work for CBS. Yeah, yeah so I can see, I mean, I can honestly see how, how CBS's lawyers would say, look, you are damaging, you are damaging the perception of our anchor's legitimacy um with with this so because since he was still actively doing it and he's he's a public figure but he's a public figure that is you know meant to be this sounds so quaint meant to be trusted by the public as a uh, as a talking head on the television um wow 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 this sounds old-fashioned but i can i can absolutely see why they would um why they would do that but um it was yeah, it's just a, a really, you know, with, with, with Sagan and, and, you know, Paley, even though nobody really, few people know who Paley is uh, or was, uh, it's a great example of how Dark Skies really just sort of went for it in terms of those not just historical figures like it, from the political realm, but from the media and science as well. And now I really want to go back and watch a bunch of Dark Skies episodes, and I'm so glad I own the DVDs. So, Matthew, where can people find you and buy this book? Well, if you want to uh, hear more from me or ask me some uh, ask me questions as listeners, I am on Twitter. Uh, probably be the best way of reaching me. You can find me on Twitter at Kressel Writes, K R E S A L W R I T E S. Um, I'm also on Facebook, I both as my personal page and as an author page, uh, just my name, Matthew Kressel. 
if you want the book, if you're after, if you're outside the U.S. or you just want the ebook, you can buy it straight from Obverse Books. Uh, I believe it's obverse.co.uk. If you're uh, outside the U.K. and especially here in the U.S. and you want a physical copy of the book and you do not want to pay international shipping, uh, you can get the book print-on-demand via Lulu. Uh, just type in Dark Skies and my name, or Silver Archive Dark Skies, into the Lulu search engine, and you should be able to find it pretty quickly. And we'll have links to all of that in the show notes. And I will say that um, the the ebook purchasing from Obverse Books is really slick. You you pay a um, you you pay for the book, obviously. And maybe I'm bad at math, but I think the ex- the exchange rate uh, from the states to uh, to the UK is 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 fairly favorable compared to uh, compared to years past. So you you you, yes. you, you pay. It's it's really nice. I'm like that's it. Um, so you you pay the money and you get a number of ebook formats that are DRM free. Free and clear. You've got your you got your EPUB for your iPads. You've got your Mobi for your Kindles. You've and and what other whatever other devices you might have. It's um, it's really nice. I have dozens of eBooks from Obverse Books, and uh, they're they're great. Um, not just not just Matthew's book, but if you're a, if you're a Doctor Who person, and I know there are several Doctor Who people who listen to the show, um, it's they've got great stuff. Their Sapphire and Steel volumes from the Silver Archive are amazing, and we we probably will be doing a Sapphire and Steel episode at some point just because it's so weird. Um, but great stuff, great books. Uh, Matthew, thank you so much for being our f- – well, I mean technically not our first interview, but our first – podcast interview style interview um and and thank you for writing a book about dark skies well thank you very much for having me and it it is nice to know that there is in fact an audience for this book after all thanks for listening and thank you matthew kressel for being uh, our guest on the show for this very special interview in the show notes are links to where you can get uh, dark skies on dvd as well as where you can purchase matthew's book about the show the associate producer of The Saucer Life is Simpson J. Hanover III. The Saucer Life is a production of Chizo Media LLC. Chizo Media, working for the good of mankind along the lines of truth. Till next time, keep watching the skies because the skies are watching you. Mm-hmm.